G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And speaking of giants, we are right in the middle of that famous passage in Genesis chapter 6, which deals with the Nephilim. So this is the sweet, sweet spot for our show. Things were getting really interesting when we left off last week after talking about the Anunnaki. And Tim, I'm sure you'll correct my mispronunciation. Uh, so I can't wait to dive into uh, some more stuff about the giants today. Well, Chris, I hate to disappoint you, but we haven't got there yet because the author of Genesis 6 appears to have interrupted our story so that he can tell us something that seems to be completely irrelevant. Sure, but can't we just skip that and get to the exciting bit? I want to hear about the giants. Give me the giants. Well, I promise you we'll get there, mate, but we've got to be faithful in our commitment to Scripture and not gloss over the bits that are hard to understand or that look a bit less interesting. And I think we should find this interesting because, well, it's the first time that God has something to say about the events that are unfolding here in our story. The problem is it really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. We're going to be focused on verse 3 today, but for the sake of our reading, we'll just go once more through the entire pericope of the giants and for something different. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, which for the purposes of this reading is perhaps simultaneously the best and worst reading of this passage that I've ever seen. Genesis 6, 1 from the New Living Translation. Then the people began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Now, I'll say a few things about this rendering of the passage before we drill down into verse 3. Firstly, I think those first two verses, which we covered last week, are pretty well expressed here, except that once again we've moved away from the archetypal narrative and the figurative use of ground as the human population of the world. So it's kind of disappointing to see the use of the word earth, which, as I mentioned last week, has us thinking about planets spinning out in space instead of the ground, which represents the human population. And, of course, that line of thinking, if we follow it to the conclusions that are popular in fringe media, would lead us to see the sons of God as aliens from other planets rather than beings who fall into the broad category of Elohim. We discussed that last week, and it means that as far as physical space and time are concerned, these entities have no need of a place of residence. They are spiritual entities who have become embodied for the purposes of their work among the sons of Adam. This is why it's super important that we continue to make scripture in its ancient context our frame of reference rather than science fiction. I'm not saying that the New Living Translation is interpreting scripture through that lens, but it certainly leaves it open to that possibility. And most people who don't know better are simply going to blindly walk that line. There are heaps of other translations which also leave that ambiguity in play rather than following the biblical use of language. As I say, other than that, the NLT does a pretty good job of those first couple of verses, and then we hit verse 3. I'm not even going to talk about verse 4. I'll read verse 3 again. Genesis 6, 3. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Yeah, it's an interesting choice of words there. Yeah, okay. So to start with, then the Lord said, and you know that whenever we find the word Lord in all caps, that's a nod to the modesty of preserving the divine name in Scripture. For those who feel that it would be disrespectful to read the divine name and say it, personally, I don't feel that there's any particular need to obscure the divine name. I'm quite happy to say Yahweh respectfully, and I'd prefer it if autocorrect on my phone didn't intentionally misspell it every time I type it. Uh, I'd also like to see apps like Blue Letter Bible actually use it instead of inserting Jehovah into their transliteration notes. Anyway, that's enough of my personal gripes. The Lord said, my spirit, literally breath or wind or animating principle, if you like, for the Greeks in the audience. The Hebrew there is ruach. Now, the last time we saw that word ruach, it was in the context of the coming wrath of God in the moment when Adam and Eve have realized their sin and hidden themselves and God comes looking for them in the spirit of the day. And we talked about that back in season two as a reference to an apocalyptic future judgment because every good Jewish listener hearing this text would have been brought back to the message of the prophets who continually encourage the people to live in light of the coming judgment of God, which would come in the day of the Lord. And in that day, there would be reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. So. The first thing we need to be aware of when we see that word translated as spirit, which is ruach, we need to be thinking in terms of the judgment of God. I don't know. I think that is throwing a bit of a long bow, reconnecting the spirit of God to judgment. Now, you know, you might think that that is drawing a bit of a long bow and connecting the spirit of God's judgment, but we're going to see how well this fits as we continue to read through the verse and indeed the entire flood narrative that this is preparing for. This is the bit where the NLT really lets us down. I mean, totally drops the ball. My spirit will not put up with humans. Are you serious? Put up with humans? What is that? Yeah, that's not very nice. It kind of makes it sound like God doesn't like us. Some people seem to think that God only tolerates us, especially that nasty Old Testament God. Let's not go there. I mentioned before that this rendering of the text in the NLT seems to display some ignorance of Jewish literary devices, which can lead to ambiguities like the word earth instead of ground. But nowhere is that ignorance more profound than right here in the phrase, put up with humans. To be fair, it is a bit of a tough nut to crack if you're not prepared to put in the study, but that's what Bible translators are supposed to do. That's the job. You don't get to just riff off someone else's translation and try to make it easier to read in the common vernacular. So let's see how other translations have approached the phrase, which in Hebrew is Yadon lo alam Yadon ba'adam. The NIV has, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. The NASB, back in 1995, they said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, which is similar to the King James. But in 2020, the NASB changed their mind and decided it was going to be, my spirit will not remain with man forever. The ESV has, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. The NET, my spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely. And the Darby translation has, my spirit shall not always plead with man. So we've got some really interesting interpretive choices there. We had contend with, strive with, remain with, abide in, remain in, and plead with. You'll probably find some more if you look into some other versions. I took my time. I hurried up. The choice was mine. I didn't think enough. I uh, did not get that reference. 
That's not your fault. So you'll notice that all of those used either with or in, in terms of the relationship between the Spirit of God and mankind. And I think that takes us back to Genesis 2, verse 7. And the breath of life that was breathed into the man. And back when we were talking about that in season two of the podcast, I talked about the Holy Spirit of God as the agent that animates the human being, not as in the sense of the awakening of biological life in this non-living flesh, but as in the sense of animating an image designed to represent God and to function as his body by bringing the life of God, the very person of God, into action through the man. So this talk about the Spirit of God has these intrinsic connections back to the function and purpose of humanity as images of God and to the work of God that he accomplishes in and through us. Now, when we talk about the work of God, and we went into this in some detail back in season one when we talked about creation, what we're really talking about is the ability to discern between things of one kind and things of another and to make right judgments and to create order in the world around us by applying that wisdom. This is what you see in Proverbs chapter 8 and the idea that wisdom was present and involved in the creation of the world. That's what the Spirit of God does in us and through us. But there's a problem. We had this little issue back in Genesis 3, didn't we? There was that thing about the serpent and choosing to appropriate divine wisdom for ourselves before we were ready to handle it because we wanted to have the power to judge before we were ready to wield that authority. And ever since then, the consequences of that have been manifest in the spirit of man being in contention with or striving with the spirit of God. We decided that we wanted the power of judgment in order to apply it for our own benefit and not for the larger purposes of God in the world. Nature abhors a vacuum. And as we were reading through the rest of Genesis 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw evidence of the struggle between righteousness and evil in the world in the way that people aligned themselves with God or with other Elohim. Some characters tend to lean more one way than the other, and particularly as we went through the second half of the genealogy in Genesis 5, we saw evidence that the world was becoming increasingly divided and that two kingdoms were at war with one another. And we're no longer talking about the inward struggle within a person who wants to do right and doesn't know how to orient themselves. Now we're talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the sons of God. And the sons of God were clearly taking over the world by taking wives from among the daughters of men. And we can say that because when we read the Hebrew, we find that it is the man. It is the archetype. It's everyone. This isn't just an isolated little pocket in some little city state somewhere. Again, this is why Noah is going to be singled out. He's the only one left. But let's not jump too far ahead. We need to get back to that language of what exactly the spirit of God was doing in or with mankind. It might seem like a bit of a challenge to reconcile the various verbs that we saw in those different translations of the text. Yeah, how are we supposed to understand words like, you know, contend, remain, abide, strive, plead, etc.? How does that work? I'm going to suggest that one more verb we should throw in the mix is the word judge. Judge as in like the sense of discerning or judge in a legal sense, like a person who is a judge? Yes, Okay, as clear as mud. Thanks a lot. Well, in the ancient Near East, people in positions of power sat in seats of authority at the gates of the city. Sitting down was a posture of luxury reserved only for people in positions of high honour. Teachers and judges and kings could sit, and if you were coming to them as an inferior, then you had to stand in their presence. People would come to judges to help them get resolutions to small disputes. The idea was that you had a person seated there who was considered to have superior wisdom and they would help you to sort out your problems. 
these people were considered to be judges of the community. So you'll see all kinds of phrases connected to this in biblical language, like sitting in judgment or seat of authority or to sit at the gates and other phrases like that. The idea is that it's the Spirit of God who's supposed to sit in the place of authority in your life and give you the wisdom to deal with everyday matters of the heart and to help you determine the right course of action in your life. But, of course, that only works if you listen to the judgment of the Spirit and you obey the directions that you're given. The judge may be compassionate toward you and may encourage you to strongly follow a recommended course of action, but ultimately he will not make you do it. You're going to choose your own way, for better or worse. And as we know from reading further in this passage, the man, who again represents all of us, has become thoroughly corrupt and thinks only about evil all the time. So how is he in a position to respond to the right judgment of the Spirit of God in his life? This is what depravity looks like. Now, you have to hold this idea of the Spirit of God sitting in judgment in your life in tension with the idea of humans as God's image bearers. God's people are responsible for doing the works of God and presenting the nature and person of God in their thoughts, words, and actions. When you get that wrong, you do not represent God, and you get that wrong by not responding rightly to the Spirit of God at work in your life. You see how these things work together, right? This is why Paul tells us in the New Testament, that it's the Spirit of Christ working within him that enables him to do what is good. Of course, prior to the advent of Christ, you'd have to refer to the Spirit of God. But Paul sees God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that's why he can talk about the Spirit of Christ in the same fashion. So what we have here is one aspect of that idea of sitting in judgment. And you'll find the sitting component of that reflected in the text as abiding, remaining, resting, or what have you. Then on the other side of that same image, you have the act of pronouncing judgments, which is what the person sitting is doing. So that's why you have your language of contending or striving or pleading. This is more like that legal terminology. And this is what I was getting at back in season two when I addressed a question that was sent in on this topic. And I was asked where I land between the interpretive options of abiding or contending in this verse. So you can see how those two sides of the metaphor work together. Right, it's not just sitting and it's not just judging, it's sitting in judgment. Yeah, we just don't have one word that captures the whole image there. So there are dozens of examples of the use of this language in Scripture, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave you with one. This is Jeremiah 22, verse 16. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? So in that example, there's the word defended, which has the same Hebrew terminology behind it that we find in our reading in Genesis 6, verse 3. There's a really strong association with justice that we can't overlook. With all that in mind, let's revisit Genesis 6, 3 again and consider the implications of what we've just been talking about. So the NLT has this. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. And given what we've just been learning, we might make an attempt at shoehorning in something a bit closer to the original intent of the author. Let's try this. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not sit in judgment within the hearts of mankind for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Now, I've only made that one little change there to what the NLT had originally. We've still got more work to go because I'm not real happy about the use of the phrase for such a long time. You'll find that most Bible translations are going to settle on forever, and there'll be a handful that use always, and I did see one that uses indefinitely. Any of those would be better than such a long time. We have to remember the narrative context here. This is about people striving for immortality. This is about rebellion against the decree of God, 
when he said, you shall surely die. A long time doesn't mean anything if you're never going to die. And the means of achieving this immortality is directly connected to the intermarriage of the sons of God and the daughters of men. On the one hand, you've got these virtually timeless beings who were created once, but now exist in an immortal state. And then you've got humanity desperate to create a legacy for himself. Where the two combine, humanity meets immortality in an unholy mixture that not only defies the judgment of God in Genesis 3, but also defies the very purpose of human creation. Now, you might walk into this situation blind and without consideration of the background we've just been talking about and say, well, what could be so wrong with mankind wanting to live forever? Isn't that a good thing? Like, doesn't God ultimately want us to live forever anyway? What's the problem? Yeah, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that we're back to this concept of immortality in a fallen state, which is exactly the problem that God addressed in Genesis 3 by exiling the man and his wife from the Garden of Eden. Only this time, the corruption of humanity has gone beyond simply crossing a moral threshold and has now become an issue of identity at its very core. It's one thing for God's image bearer to drop the ball and misrepresent God while still operating in most respects as one who bears God's image and is capable of repentance. It's another thing entirely to abandon the God who created you in order to become the embodiment of a different God. It's at this point that humanity as created by God ceases to exist. Remember that function and existence in the ancient mind are inseparable. You can't be the thing if you don't do what the thing does. People at this point have become so full of wickedness that they can think of nothing else. They don't represent God. They don't bear his image or his name. Everything they do is an act of defiance against the natural created order. These are not humans anymore. And on a physical level, we also have to consider the effect of this interbreeding. Humanity isn't defined only on a functional level, but also ontologically. You've crossed the species barrier now. God selected only one species to represent him in the material world. Any other species is not bound to that same purpose. Again, on a functional level, that representation isn't bound to a set of genetic markers. It's status and purpose and function. But those were not just given to everything in creation. They were given to humankind. Let's look at one aspect of this. Humans are social creatures. And that's how we best represent God, by cooperating with one another in unity. Where that breaks down is when people reach for these godlike attributes and powers that enable them to live independently of relationship with others. What do you need others for if you don't fear nature, man, God, or death? So crossing the species barrier in the quest for immortality leads to the breakdown of function because of the destruction of natural relationships. As I say in my book, we often don't think about the fact that one thing you need in order to be saved by God from the judgment to come is that you have to be human. Jesus took on human nature in order to be our representative before the Father. That's one of the core messages of the book of Hebrews. The humanity of Christ is repeatedly emphasized. Jesus didn't turn up as some kind of hybrid. The life that he lived was a human life, and the death that he died was a human death. Anything less than that or anything different to that does not serve as an atonement for human sin. In other words, if the death of Jesus Christ does not atone for the sin of Adam, then we're all eternally condemned. So ultimately, the plan of God was always going to be the preservation of the human species as created in Adam. So the response of God here in Genesis 6 is the limitation of, of human lifespan. And that sounds a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because the end goal is to preserve the human race. So why would you shorten the lifespan of humans? Yeah, it does seem a bit strange. First, we have to remember that this isn't making human lifespans shorter. We already talked about how lifespans in the primeval history are given for the purpose of messaging in the text and communicating certain ideas in keeping with certain literary conventions. People were not really living that long anyway, so 
This isn't about reducing human lifespan as much as it's actually preventing it from being longer. And again, that doesn't contradict the fact that even after this pronouncement is made, we still have the symbolic use of numbers giving people these extraordinary lifespans. But let's come back to the point here. This is where the NLT finally comes good. The desire of man was immortality, but the problem there is the increase of corruption and evil and violence as people live longer. That's not good. God puts his foot down and says, you're just not going to live that long. I'm not going to let that happen to you. You don't realize that it isn't good to live indefinitely apart from the function and purpose that you're created for. And why is that? It's because living with selfish ideals creates pain and dissatisfaction within yourself and it hurts others around you. We know this, but fortunately for us, we haven't been cursed with the tragic fate of living in that fashion forever. A lot of people are going to push back against what I said a moment ago because they've read this with Genesis 5 and the long ages of the patriarchs still ringing in their ears and assume that this was about people having lived these really long ages beforehand and God cutting down that human lifespan to something a bit more akin to what we see today. With all due respect to those who hold that view, we just spent almost 20 episodes of the podcast last season explaining why those long ages are not supposed to be interpreted that way. So in light of that, it would be wise to reconsider the reason for the limitation of human lifespan and perhaps put it in the context of what's happening here in chapter 6 with the immortal sons of God. As far as the reason for this concern, I've already touched on it as an act of mercy, and I go into some detail on that in my book as well. One of the driving factors behind repentance is the idea that we don't know how much time we've got in our life. You can't make plans and say, well, today I'll do what I feel like and tomorrow I'll repent. Jesus makes that pretty clear in one of his parables about the rich man who was so busy laying up treasure for himself and making plans for his future, that he ran out of time to prepare anything of value for the age to come. So the idea of limited lifespan is not just about reminding man of his mortal origins, but also reminding him that he does not know when it'll be too late to turn back to God. He's never going to have as much time as he thinks he has. That doesn't really make any sense that these hybrids roam in the earth as a Nephilim because they've already achieved for themselves some kind of longevity. So what's the use of God turning around and saying that they've only got 120 years? Well, I don't think we're supposed to read that proclamation as applying to the sons of God and the Nephilim. When we look at the textual evidence for how that bears out, we see it applying to human beings after the flood. It seems to take a while to work out because for as long as we remain in the primeval history, we're still dealing with these exaggerated lifespans that have messaging embedded in the numbers. But eventually we get to the point where the human lifespan generally doesn't exceed 120 years. And that's going to coincide with a change in the narrative features of the text as we transition out of this mythic history and into a style of narrative that's a bit more matter of fact. When I say that these pre-flood people were not really living for hundreds of years as described, that isn't actually a contradiction. All we're seeing in the text is a transition from a genre that uses exaggerated lifespans for theological messaging into a genre that doesn't make use of those narrative features. It doesn't really reflect the change in actual human lifespan at all. I think we've got to allow the text to speak in broad strokes as well. It doesn't make God a liar if somebody lives to 125. This is about humanity in general. And generally, people don't live that long. Okay, but for a lot of people, the way they read that text is that it's God saying in 120 years, the flood is going to come, and that's how long people have to live before it happens. What about that? Yeah, I have heard people say that, and I did actually come across one particular Bible translation that actually spells it out in that manner. But we've got other things to consider. We get told in the text that Noah was 500 years old when he had his sons. We get told that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. The immediate context of God's instructions to Noah concerning the flood and construction of the ark is placed at the time when Noah is said to be 500 years old. That leaves only 100 years until the flood, 
not 120. Also, that reading of the text is ignorant of the factors that we've just been talking about with regard to the limitation of human longevity as a response to the incursion of the sons of God. But of course, if you don't have a supernatural reading of this text, and you don't think that the sons of God are divine beings capable of immortality, then there's no reason to suspect that human beings were ever going to live longer than 120 years anyway. So I can see how somebody following that train of thought would make the assumption that this pronouncement of 120 years could apply to nothing other than the time remaining before the flood comes. That's not how it works in this text. This announcement that God makes in verse 3 is not a flood spoiler. It's actually not a statement made in relation to the flood at all. It's a pronouncement of destiny. And it functions as a mercy to humanity and a curse on the Nephilim. And we see that in the way that God refers to man as flesh. That's a powerful statement. Here God cuts down the lofty aspirations of mankind by reminding him of his mortality and his physical nature. He is not like the Elohim. That is awesome, and it's a great reminder to us to stay humble, uh, which is always a good reminder. But I think we'd better leave it there and move on to some Q&A, and uh, when we pick it up next time, we'll get into Genesis 6-4, and we can finally get talking about giants. Yeah, that's going to be great fun. I'm sure our listeners are going to stick around for that one. All right, let's have some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Alrighty then, we have this question from Mark in the Fallen Angels and Ethnim group on Facebook. Mark asked, what did God fully mean when he said nothing will be impossible for them at the Tower of Babel? Hmm, that's a good question. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, I did go into this in some detail in my book, and of course, as we get further along in this podcast, we will eventually get to Genesis 11, where we'll have the opportunity to dive deep into this. But the answer to that question ties into what we've been talking about already on this episode. The goal of mingling humanity with divinity from a human point of view is to achieve self-determination. What man sees in the divine nature is the power to do as thou wilt. And we saw that in the fall in the Garden of Eden. We see it again in Genesis 6 and the origin of the Nephilim. But when we get to Babel, we're no longer dealing with a population looking for divine wisdom from a prohibited source. We're not dealing with people making deals with angels for material benefits. At Babel, what's at stake is the actual grasping of divine nature to a significant degree. Obviously, full divinity isn't possible for those born as mortals, but the goal is to achieve that divine power and immortality in the flesh, in this life, in this world. When the people said, let us make a name for ourselves, my argument is that the intent there is we should be understanding that as let us make ourselves into the people of the name. And that should be taking us straight back to Genesis 6 and the men of renown. So that's not the same as misrepresenting God by failing to align your actions to his word, as we see in Genesis 3. That's not the same as unwittingly allowing other gods to compete with the spirit of the Most High for representation in the human body, which is what we see happening in Genesis 6. Now in chapter 11, we have this situation where people are deliberately inviting foreign gods to indwell and empower them and changing their own human forms to do so. They want that divine power. They want that strength. They want to be feared and they want that reputation. 
These are not people who accidentally unleashed the race of giants upon the earth. These are people who are trying to make it happen again. And the way they're going about it is by inviting the gods to become embodied in them. That's not just demonic possession. That's something far worse. This is starting to sound like a horror movie. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, the text tells us that the motivation for building the Tower of Babel was the idea of not being scattered across the face of the earth. It was disregarding the instruction given by God to bring order by spreading out and taking care of the world. And it seems that the means of disobeying this divine imperative was by grasping at divine power in order to be able to resist. Where we have in the text this idea of nothing they imagine being impossible for them, we should probably be thinking in terms of there being no limit to the evil that they could imagine and do rather than notions of possible versus impossible. I think that's a better understanding of the Hebrew. We have a tendency to look at a phrase like nothing is impossible and think, well, if it really means nothing is impossible, then that means that somebody could become more powerful than God because we might have previously thought that was impossible, but now we're saying nothing is impossible, so it has to be possible. I don't think reading it in that fashion is consistent with the intent of the text. That was probably more confusing than it needed to be, but I think I get it. As far as what kind of things actually were possible for these transformed humans to be able to do, I really wouldn't speculate because we get no mention of anything like that in Scripture. But what we do see is that throughout the ancient world, people rise up in power over others and receive worship as gods. And that really is, in the eyes of the authors of the Hebrew Bible, the ultimate evil. We have a tendency to think about superpowers, like we want to fly around and shoot lasers from our eyes and see in infrared and move objects with our minds, but that's not the kind of thing that ancient people would have been talking about. Instead, when we talk about divine power, we should be thinking more in terms of creation. And again, when we talk about creation, it's probably not connected to that materialistic idea of creation and the origin of material substances. I think we should be thinking more about setting order in the world as we see fit. And when that comes from a human perspective, it always involves our selfish human nature. And that's the problem because when we orient things toward ourselves, we neglect and abuse others, whether we intend that or not. We don't have the wisdom of God. God has given to us all the mission of extending his creation throughout the world. And that comes with a limited ability to use God's wisdom in creative ways to bring order to the world around us. The uniqueness of God as the creator is rooted in his perfection and supreme wisdom that nobody else will ever replicate. God is truly unique in that sense. And in the biblical mind, you can't talk about uniqueness without the idea of holiness. Because uniqueness is essentially being something other than anything else, which is precisely the same application of the term holiness. We have a tendency to think of holiness as moral perfection. But as I've mentioned before on the podcast, that's because we look at God's moral perfection and we say that it's unique. Because holiness is uniqueness, that means that God's moral perfection is a kind of holiness because nobody can be perfectly sinless and morally superior the way that God can. But we're not talking about holiness as morality. We're applying holiness to God's unique creative power and wisdom. So this kind of power to effect changes against the good order that God has created is a big problem for humans because we can't do creation right without him. In choosing to be controlled by divine beings hostile to their creator and his creation just makes that situation a lot worse. That brings chaos and disorder to the world that God had made very good. And it creates problems, inequity and imbalance. The many suffer while a few prosper. And we see problems like that in our world today everywhere we look, but it's taken a long time to come to this. We had God's intervention in Eden, in the flood, at Babel, in the Exodus, in the conquest of Canaan, and so on. 
Most importantly, the work of Christ and his resurrection from the dead, which was, of course, followed by the introduction of the church. All of this has been working against intelligent evil in the world as God's mercy toward his image bearers, encouraging loyalty to Yahweh and a return to the good order he created. And every step of the way, God has been working to preserve his creation in the good order that he established, and that includes who we are as his image bearers on earth. Let's look at this another way. The problem in the Garden of Eden was that the serpent was attempting to destroy the image of God by condemning the humans to death. In Genesis 6, the strategy was to corrupt the vessel that bears the image of God so that it would become a distinct species from the original humanity and therefore unredeemable. At Babel, the strategy was to turn human beings into image bearers for the fallen gods instead of the Most High, destroying mankind on a functional level and using the fear of power and tyranny to dominate the world. So it should start to make sense now as to why God responded the way he did. God isn't going to prevent people from doing what they want to do, but in his mercy, he will put the brakes on things in order to give people the opportunity for repentance. That's why the confusion of languages was such an ingenious response. Having everybody suddenly cut off from the people in charge must have been a great opportunity for them to reflect within themselves about where they were headed in their own lives and who their real allegiances belonged to. And it drastically slowed down the human divine singularity project that was unfolding at Babel. I think we're approaching a time in world history where people will have finally found themselves a workaround to reunite for the purpose of achieving God-like power. But in the meantime, how have the faithful people of God responded? As we go through biblical history, we see Abraham become the father of a people that would rise up in faithfulness to God, the people who would ultimately bring forth the Messiah. Haven't we been busy for the last 2,000 years building the global church in faithfulness to Jesus Christ? People have always tried to make themselves like God's, but ultimately we have a God who is helping us to be more like him. And I reckon that's better than any superpower you can imagine. Amen. Well, we are out of time this week. It's time for us both to say goodbye. We teased you uh, last time, but this time, really do mean it. The Giants, they're a-coming. Stay tuned. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already subscribe do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at RaisingCreekSC.com and go to GiantAnswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Which escape room was that? Uh, escape this in the city. just opened apparently um, and we did the newest room called the Dunny. And... Uh, you're basically trapped in an outback outhouse and uh, you have to escape before a Wolf Creek-like axe murderer comes and does his way with you. So uh, we didn't escape. So I guess technically we're all dead. Oh, right.
Okay. Um, wow. Well, it was hard. It's a horrible ending. Sounds like. Yeah. Don't want to die in a dunny. No. No, and especially because they don't let you bring your phone. No. <laughs> exactly. Haven't really had much uh, of interest to talk about. The pleasantries are scant today. I think I um nothing worth reporting. I um I tried raspberry coke for the first time. Have you had raspberry coke? I don't think so. Sounds disgusting, but is it? it well, it is less disgusting than cherry coke. Um, Do they still make that? Wasn't that an eighties thing? Oh, I think they've had that for a long time, and it just sort of comes and goes from. Vanilla Coke, I like. That's still around. Yeah, I think Vanilla Coke's the only variant that's really had any traction at all in Australia. It's no eggnog. No, no, it isn't. Eggnog. I don't understand the American fixation with cherry-flavoured things. Uh, You can get cherry-flavoured pretty much anything. No, really? And I do not like it. It's too tart. Mm. I'm not a big fan of tartness. Mm. Now, I can handle a bit of tartness, you know, strawberries, but then they're, they're a bit more sweet. No. There's a bit of both. It's a bit more balance. Next week, uh, make sure you do something exciting so we don't have to have this discussion again.